All right, well, good morning, church. Can you guys hear me okay? Is my mic on? All right, great, great. Listen, for those of you who are new here, my name is Will Franco. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it's so good to have you here with us. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I will be over by the steps at the end of the service and would love to shake your hand there. Uh, This morning, we are in the second installment of a series entitled Made for This. And what we are doing in this series is we are preparing ourselves for the launch of the ministry year. And one of the things that happens when you are preparing yourself for the launch of a ministry year is there are certain things that need to be addressed. And so we are doing this series in order to address those things. Uh, This morning, we are addressing the subject of community. Last week, we were addressing the subject of service. And so those are the two things we are addressing, service the first week, community the second week. And so if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to turn to the Old Testament. We're going to be in Psalm 133. Psalm 133, um, and as you turn there, there's only three verses there, so it's a short passage today. It won't be a short sermon, but it's a short passage. And uh, so Psalm 133, and there's three verses there. If you uh, have your Bible turned there, if you don't have a Bible, they'll be here on the screen behind me. So if you can please stand for the reading of God's word, I'll be reading from Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3. If you're with me, say amen. Amen. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Everybody say unity. unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, Down on the collar of his robe, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. It's the word of the Lord. Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, we are grateful that your word is perfect. But we know, Lord, that your messenger is imperfect. And so, Father, I pray that from the moment I say amen, Lord, that you would keep me from saying anything that does not come from you. And, Lord, as we address this psalm that was unexpectedly just incredibly encouraging for me, Lord, such a small psalm had so many things to say to me and hopefully to us. God, I just pray that from the moment we start, from the moment I say amen, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart uh, will be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That is my prayer. That is our prayer. And all God's people said, you may be seated. So like I already mentioned, this morning we are addressing the subject of community, and we're looking at community through the lens of Psalm 133. And what I want to do this morning is, what I want to do as we look at this passage is we are going to look at Psalm 133 under two headings. So we're going to begin this morning, and we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning looking at the qualities of community. And then we are going to conclude after that this morning by looking at the qualifications of community. So we're going to begin with the qualities of it, and then we will conclude with the qualifications for it. All right? So let's begin this morning by looking at the qualities of community. In this passage, uh, King David, who is the author of this psalm, he actually gives us four qualities that need to be present if we are to have a godly community. Okay, there are four marks, four characteristics that are necessary. The first quality is unity. The second quality is quality. I'll explain that one when we get there. The the third quality is proximity. And then the fourth quality is intentionality. Okay, so let's begin this morning by looking at the first quality of community. The first quality of community is unity. Look what it says in verse 1 of Psalm 133. David writes, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Now, that word there, unity, is a very interesting word in the Hebrew. It's more than just superficial unity. See, the world we live in settles for superficial unity. The word there, unity, it means to be one at all levels. It means to be fully one. To put it in another way, in in, in the Hebrew, what the word study says, it it means to be connected 
at the heart level. Now, the reason why that's so important for us to understand that, that it means to be connected at the heart level, is because in our culture, the heart is just emotions. When we think of the heart, we think of Valentine's Day and rom-coms, right? We think of emotions. But what's so fascinating about Scripture is that in Scripture, the heart is the center of your being. It's the core of your person. So when the word there, unity, means to be united at the heart level, in Scripture, the heart is what you worship with. The heart is what you, you love with. The heart is what you unite yourself with. So when it says that we have unity at the heart level, it means that we are united fully at a much deeper level than the superficial unity that our world settles for. Now, here's what's important about that word, though. The word there, unity, doesn't mean uniformity, okay? And one of the things that you might start to believe, if you're not careful, is you might start to assume that unity equals uniformity, and so in order for us to have uh, unity, we must act and look and talk the same. Listen, the world needs, doesn't need any more Will Frankos, okay? And so if, if, if unity was uniformity and all of us were like me or whoever, pick, pick the person, we would not be doing what God is calling us to do. Here, here's what happens when you come to Jesus. And, and I know that for me personally, I kind of swung from one extreme to the other when I first came to know Jesus. When you come to know Christ, you are given a new identity and a new community. But if you're not careful, you can actually throw away all the things that used to be true of you because I'm a Christian now. Yeah, it's true. But, but, but it, if, if, you, if you are a, a black engineer, when you come to know Jesus, you're still a black engineer. But you are a Christian black engineer. See? So in other words, it, it, what you used to do, what you used to be, it still describes you, but now your relationship with Christ, it defines you. And so I'm no longer, so, so with me, I, 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 the, if, if you look at someone like me, I am a Hispanic, right? But, but, but what's crazy about my story is that now I am a Christian Hispanic. The, the, who I am in Christ comes first. It is my primary identity. Everything else becomes then secondary. So what that means is, is that as we come together here at Tri-Village, one of the beautiful things about our church is that there's black people and white people and Asian people and Hispanic people. But when we come here together, we are Christians first. Amen. All those things uh, uh, describe us, but only Jesus defines us. And so when we come here, that, that's what it means, that, that we are to have unity and not uniformity, okay? So, so the best way that I can describe it, and I've described it like this in the past, is that we are called to be a salad bowl and not a melting pot. See, America is known as the melting pot. Right? And we all come together, and we all lose our distinctiveness because we all get put in this big pot and then no one remembers what, we, what you were because now we're this different thing. But that's not actually what the Bible says. The word there, unity, also includes diversity. So when we come together, we are part of something bigger, a salad, but someone's the tomato and someone's the cucumber and someone's the iceberg. Who wants to be the iceberg lettuce, am I right? But, but anyways, <laughs> but, 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 but we are all part of something bigger and yet still we keep our distinctiveness. That's what it means there when it says unity. Now, the other thing I want you to see there about the word unity, though, is that unity, by definition, includes all types of people. One of the illustrations that's used here in the passage is he describes, uh, David describes the relationship between Mount Hermon and Mount Zion. Now, what you might not know, because I actually didn't even really know this until I studied it this week, is that Mount Hermon is way higher and taller than Mount Zion. As a matter of fact, Mount Hermon was one of the biggest, if not the biggest mountain in that region, in the region of Judea. It was 10,000 feet above sea level. Mount Zion was much, much smaller. So here's what, what, what the author here, King David, is saying. The dew that falls on Mount Hermon, the taller mountain, is the same dew that falls on Mount Zion, the smaller mountain. And so here's what this means. Follow with me here. It means that no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, the dew of God's grace falls on all of us. It doesn't matter your stature. It doesn't matter what you've achieved. It doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done. 
What's beautiful about this passage is that what unity implies, if Mount Hermon is taller than Mount Zion and the, God's dew falls on both, God is the source of that dew, what that means is we all get grace no matter where we are in life. And so when you are here at Tri-Village, there's a place for you here. Actually, one of the things that we say here all the time is what, what usually tends to happen in churches is this. When, when you come into a church, people will say to you, hey, we need you to believe what we believe, behave how we behave, and then you can belong. But what we say here at Tri-Village is, no, 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 you belong, and God will take care of when you behave and when you believe. That's not our job. The Holy Spirit does that. Our job is to make sure you belong. Why? Because God's grace, the dew, is for the highest mountain and the lowest mountain. And there ain't no mountain high enough. <laughs> ain't no valley low enough to keep you from getting the dew. Okay? So, 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 but here's the thing. Here's the other beautiful thing that I, that I realized this week. This is why God's word is just so awesome. Because not only is Mount Hermon much taller than Mount Zion, but one of the things I discovered is that Mount Hermon was in northern Israel, and then Mount Zion was in southern Judah. Now, if you know anything about the geographics, Israel was the northern kingdom, and then Judah was the southern kingdom. So follow me here. God's grace, and, and oh, before I say that, these, these two kingdoms for a long time hated each other. There was a rivalry there. There was dissension there. So what's beautiful about God's grace is that not only is it for people who are up here and people who are down here, but if you look at even the location of the mountains, God's grace overcomes every boundary. There, there's no boundary big enough to keep me from you. Keep going back to that song, man. <laughs> In a singing mode this morning. There, there, that, you, see the, you see what the beauty there? And that's actually what it says in Ephesians 2, that the wall of hostility is torn down, uh, not by uh, 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 social justice movements, but the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles is torn down by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grace surpasses every boundary. So the first mark of a godly community is unity. The second mark of a, or second quality of a godly community is quality. Now, here's what I mean by quality. If you go back to verse 1, it says in verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Good and pleasant. So what we see David doing here is David is describing to us the quality of community. Christian community has a different level of quality than non-Christian community. So let me explain each one of these words, because I think these words will, will help us unpack what, what David means here. The word there, good, is used actually several times in Scripture, in particular the book of Genesis. The word there, good, it, it literally means the opposite of evil, is the opposite of moral evil. The word there, good, what it means is, is something that is pleasant in the eyes of God, something that is pleasing to the eyes of God. And that's why that word there, good, comes up again and again and again in the book of Genesis. Because in Genesis, God creates things and he says, and it was what? Good. Same Hebrew word. So good there is an objective reality. It's objective. That's what the word there, good, means. It's something that God has declared good, something that is opposite than moral evil, okay? So the first word there, good, is objective. But then the second word there, pleasant, is subjective. Because the word there, pleasant, means something beautiful, something that is attractive to the eye physically, something that is lovely, all right? Now, why is that important? Because then what it means is, is that pleasant is subjective. It depends on the beholder, the eye of the beholder. So good is objective. God, is, God sees it as morally good, the opposite of evil. And then pleasant is subjective. It's beautiful. It's attractive. It's lovely, but it's based on the eye of the beholder. It, it's based on, it depends on who is looking at it. Okay? 
Now, why is that important? Because once we understand the, the quality of community, there's two things we need to understand. And one has to do with the first word, and the other has to do with the second word. If what God describes is, as good is Christians in community, then here's what we know about Satan, our enemy. Whatever God calls good, Satan will call bad. That's actually the whole premise of Genesis chapter 3. He shows up at a, as a serpent and says, did God really say that was good or you shouldn't do this? And he is calling bad what God calls good. Listen, if that's the same Hebrew word, then you better believe that Satan is going to do everything in his power to keep you from what God calls good. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you are not in a community, a life group, a Bible study, accountability, and you are not in a community, there might be several reasons for it. Some good, but I can tell you there's at least one bad. Satan is trying to keep you from Christian community. It is when we are most likely to be tripped up. It is when we are most likely to be tempted. Satan is doing everything in his power, just like in Genesis, to keep you from what God says is good. But here's what this means, though, guys. This isn't just a commercial for our life groups and for our small group ministry. Here's what this means. If, 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 if Christian community is a good thing and Jesus actually promises where two or three gather in my name, I will be there or there I will be, right? Then that means that any relationship you have with a Christian, Satan is going to try to destroy. That includes your marriage. That includes your parenting. That includes your life group, your Bible study or whatever. But, but Satan is going to try to get in between any relationship that you have with a Christian. And so part of the reason why we must be seeking out community is because we're actually in a war here, guys. And the enemy is trying to keep you from other believers. I don't know about you, but when I think of the worst decisions I've made in my past, almost always they were made in isolation from other Christians. I had removed myself from others, and then things that weren't good ideas became great ideas because I was a committee of one. See the danger there? But then let's look at the second word, though. The second thing we have to be aware of then is if, if, if community is good and pleasant, and the word there, pleasant, is subjective, it's, it's based on the, the, the eye of the beholder, right? It's beautiful, it's attractive, but it, it depends on the person. Then one of the things we have to be careful of, because we can blame Satan for everything. We're, we're really good at blaming Satan for all the stuff we do, right? The reality is at least 50% of what we do is just us. Satan doesn't even need to help us. See, here's the thing about that word pleasant, that if, the, if we're the ones that determine what is good, what is beautiful, if we're not careful, we as believers can settle for less than good communities. So, so here's what I mean. There are Christians here today that the reason why you're not in a life group, the reason why you're not in a Bible study, the reason why you're not being held accountable by other believers is because you have a fantasy football league. You have a, a couple Facebook groups. You, you have a group of guys that you play Xbox with every night. Ton of, tons of fellowship there. I'm on these four chat rooms. I got my coworkers. See, none of those things are bad things. The problem is, is when you settle and decide that you're in community because you have those things. That's not community, guys. And don't call it that because it isn't. That's the danger. We settle. If, if, if it's subjective, we can subjectively settle for lesser community. And that's why we have to be careful. So uh, on Friday, Lil, uh, Lily was out with a friend of hers. And uh, so me and uh, my daughters went out on a date. And we went to this uh, Mexican restaurant, Chewy's. We, we, love, we love Chewy's. And so we were there and eating and having a good time, stuffing our faces. And on the way out, well, it's funny. As we were leaving the house, uh, my neighbor Nick was across the street. And I was like, what's up, brother? And he said hello to me. And then we got in the car. And then as we are leaving Chewy's, uh, I, op I opened the door for this person, this couple that's, well, I don't know if they were walking in or walking out, but I opened the door for somebody. And as the guy was walking out, he was like, hey, man, thanks. And I'm like, hey, no problem, brother. 
So Leah finally looks at me and she's like, Dad, is everybody your brother? How many brothers do you have? Right? She was so, she was so disgusted by the whole thing. Because in her mind, I only have one brother. It's my brother, right? But I call everybody else brother, and she couldn't understand why I had so many brothers. But let me tell you something. One of the things that we might be tempted to do, it, it, I actually have to even be aware of how I call people brother, because I'm calling random strangers brothers. According to Scripture, I have one blood brother who comes here to our church, and then I have... Christian brothers and sisters. And so I can't be using a word to describe people that aren't actually my brothers and sisters. Because we're a part of something bigger, guys. You know how I know this? This Friday, in, in literally in a few days, I have the opportunity to do a wedding uh, for one of my friends growing up in high school. And, and I did a wedding for the same group of guys about maybe, I don't know, like eight, nine months ago? In December, yeah. And so here's what's crazy, though. These are the guys I grew up with. And if you know anything about my story, when I was in high school, forget about being a pastor, I wasn't even a Christian yet. And so for 10 years, when I, be, when I finally became a Christian and went into ministry, it was for about, what, 13 years I was not in contact with these guys. So they didn't even know I was a Christian, let alone a pastor. And so one of them, a, a, a few months ago, when he was looking to see who was going to marry him, uh, we sent out these flyers, uh, tri-village flyers, and, and they went to the Bartlett, which is the town I grew up in. And his mom got the flyer, and she's like, hey, honey, are you looking for someone to marry you? Remember Will? He's a pastor. Go figure. <laughs> and and so, so he calls me, and he's like, hey, what's up, man? I'm like, what's up? Bro? He's like, hey, are you, a pa- are you a priest? And I'm like, no, I'm a pastor. And he's like, all right, whatever. It doesn't matter. Do you do weddings? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I do weddings. He's like, man, can you do my wedding? I know we haven't seen each other for a while or whatever. So, I, so him and his wife, or fiance at the time, they come to our house. We start doing premarital counseling with them. And then that was that, right? And then, and then now, fast forward, now I've become like the, marry, the marriage guy. Like all of them who are all getting married, you know, I, that's, that even shows you a little bit how different our lives are. I've been married for 10 years now, and we're all the same age, and they're all getting married now, right? And so now I'm the marriage guy. And so the another guy was like, hey, man, I'm getting married next year. You want to marry me too? Because I'm the only pastor they know. <laughs> so this Friday, I'm doing another wedding, and, but we've done the premarital. We've gone through this season of, of premarital counseling. But what's been so fascinating to me is that both guys, both of my friends, as I've spent time with them, all I've spent, all we do is two premarital sessions, two two-hour premarital sessions. Both of them has, have said, man, Will, it's like we've gone deeper with you in these four hours then we've gone with all the other guys in 10 years. And I always felt bad when I became a believer and walked away from my friends because I thought, man, I'm missing out on so many things. They've, they've had, what, 13 years together that I haven't been a part of, and I'm missing out on so many things. But you know what Christian community has taught me? Christian community forces you to go so deep that I really didn't miss anything. I, I just missed a few uh, drunken parties and that was it. Because when they're together, they're not really talking about anything. You can't really go deep when you're non-Christians because if you go too deep and you, you come upon a problem you don't have an answer for, what are you going to do, pray about it? And so in four hours with each one of these guys, I was able to, I was able to make up for 13 years. If anything, I was able to go deeper. Why? Because Christian community is good and pleasant. And I, I've been so used to Christian community going deep and asking hard questions that I didn't even think it was anything special. And by the end of it, they're like, whoa, we've never had a conversation like this. Because that's what Christian community does. Listen, I would even go as far as to say that if you have a physical brother or sister and they don't know Jesus, you are closer to your spiritual brothers and sisters than the physical one. Okay, that's the second quality. The third quality of Christian community is proximity. Proximity. Look what it says in verse 1. It says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. 
The word there, live, it's just, I, I just love the original language because here's what it means. It means to dwell with people. It means to stay. It means to sit. It means to remain. It, it literally means in Hebrew to, to set down your tent and to camp out somewhere. So here's what Christian community means. That in order for you to have true Christian community, there needs to be proximity. And so if you think you're in Christian community because you come to church on Sundays, you are not in Christian community. It's not enough. It doesn't go deep enough. You are to live life with others. You are to dwell there. You are to, the, the word there actually live is, is the Hebrew version of the word abide. Jesus says to abide in me, right? But, but it, we, we can't abide with Christ if we don't abide with his body. It needs to stay, to remain, to camp out. But that's not what we do, right? Many of us, we come in on Sundays, sometimes not even every Sunday, and we set our tent down real quick, and then we just pick it right back up, and we're out. Say hello, we're gone. That is not community. Christian community requires proximity. It requires time together. That can't happen on a Sunday morning. Now, now here's the thing, right? Let, let's be totally honest. The reason why Christian community is so difficult, though, it says that it's good and pleasant, right? Remember we said it's good objectively and it's pleasant subjectively. Here's the problem. Here's why it's so hard to live together. Here's why it's so hard to live in proximity. Because Christian community is always good, but it's not always pleasant. Can I get an amen? Is that okay? Am I the only one who thinks that? Okay. It's not always pleasant. Christians can be very annoying. Christians can be very awkward. I actually, I would, I would put it like this. In every group of people, Christian or non-Christian, there's three types of people, right? There are the people who lift others. There are the people who lean on others. And then there's the people who lower others. Okay? Every Christian group, Bible study, life group, accountability group, has one of each of those people. You have the people who lift others, right? You, you, you love being around those people. Uh, a couple years ago, you know, almost four years ago now, I did this uh, leadership training. And one of the things that in the training it said is when you are deciding who you want to work with or to choose as a leader, you want to make sure that that leader passes the parking lot test or the cell phone test. And here's the parking lot test, the cell phone test. Is if, if you're walking into a building and you see the individual's car, are you excited or are you depressed? Are you like, man, I can't wait to see him? Or, oh, dude, so-and-so's here. Dang it. <laughs> Who invited her? Right? So those, those people are usually the lifters of the group. They're the people who, when they're in the group, they, they lift the energy. They lift others up. They're building into others. Man, if Christian community was just those people, it'd be great. The problem is that's the minority. Then you have the second group, which are the leaners, who they're just leaning on everybody. Right? Now, some of that could be because they're going through a difficult season. But some of it could just be because they're a hot mess. They're just always leaning, always leaning. Hey, oh, hey, hey I, you, you, you've known them for like five minutes. Hey, my name's so-and-so. <sighs> <laughs> carried by a whole bunch of people. Like the dude on the mat in the story with Jesus. They're just being carried everywhere they go. They're just leaning on people. Right? And then... The really unhealthy people are the people who don't lift, don't lean. They actually lower the morale, the energy of the group. They're just negative. They're just bitter. They're just angry. See, the problem is, is that the majority of Christian community is the second two groups. And so part of the reason why it's hard for us to live in proximity with these people is because these people are difficult. Christian community is always good objectively. It's not always that great or pleasant subjectively. Does that make sense? Which is why in the New Testament, one of the things that stands out to me is that Paul, in one of his letters, he has to tell, I think it's in Ephesians, he has to tell the church of Ephesus, make every effort 
to maintain the unity of the body. Paul wouldn't have to write that if it was easy. But you have to make every effort to stay in community. Because community is hard. And because of the consumer church that we are a part of, and it's about what I need and about what I want, in order to make every effort, you got to let that mentality go and be committed regardless. That's hard, hard, hard to do. Listen, one of the reasons why Christian community is good and pleasant is because when we come together, I'm going back to that illustration that is using the passage between Mount Zion, uh, Mount Hermon and Mount Zion. One of the cool things about these two uh, uh, mountain ranges is that in Mount Hermon, because it was so elevated, what scholars say is that it remained green and alive all year round, regardless of what season it was. Mount Zion, because it was lower, when it was dry, it would dry up. As a matter of fact, there was so much precipitation coming from Mount Hermon that Mount Hermon is the main source that feeds into the Jordan River. That's how much life and abundance is on Mount Hermon. So to use that illustration this way, part of the reason why Christian community is so important is because when you're in community, you are able to be refreshed. You are able to stay uh, hydrated, if you will, in times of dryness. A, a few years ago, when Lily and I went through our miscarriage, it was already extremely hard enough. But I think one of the reasons why we were able to stay as healthy as we did was because of the community of people that came around us. If we would have been alone, that spiritually dry season would have really affected us. But the beautiful thing about Christian community, what makes it good and pleasant is that it keeps you hydrated, it keeps you refreshed, it keeps things alive in seasons that otherwise would be dead. So, that's the third quality. Then the fourth and final quality of Christian community is intentionality. Intentionality. Look what it says in verse 2. It is like it, Christian community... It is like the precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. Now, if you're not a Bible person, you're like, what the heck are we talking about here? Are we talking about essential oils here? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> my wife would love that, by the way, because she has an essential oil for everything, right? I think it's witchcraft, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. But no, she'll put essential oil on that. Hey, Lily, I broke my ankle. Here, put some lavender on it. <laughs> but so, so, like, precious oil on the beard of Aaron. Who's Aaron? What are we talking about here? Well, the first high priest of the people of Israel was a guy named Aaron. He was actually Moses' brother, right? Now, here's what's so just incredible when you, like, look at this and understand what he's saying here. When you understand the implications of this. This actually would have been very shocking to a Jewish reader. To us, it's not that shocking. But the reason why it's so shocking to the Jewish readers is because the only person, there's only two, two types of people who got oil poured on them, anointed with oil. It was kings and it was priests. That's it. So if you were a normal Jewish person, there would be no oil put on your body. So what would have been fascinating or just mind-blowing to the, to the Jews as they read this is, wait, 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 wait. You mean to tell me that if we're in community, it's like being anointed with oil? That's only for priests. That's only for kings. What, what's going on here? See, what that reveals to us, and one scholar makes this connection between the Old and the New Testament, is that one of the things that makes Christian community distinct, I would say is the greatest thing that makes it distinct, is that Christian community is not meant to be focused inward, it's meant to be focused outward. When you are brought into community, there needs to be intentionality of the community. In other words, our community exists for something other than ourselves. We, when we come to know Christ, we are made part of, we are literally become royal priests, it says. Look what it says in First uh, Peter. It says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Like again, that means nothing to us, but to a Jewish reader discovering that now in Christ, they are royal and they are priests, that would have been mind-blowing. That would have been paradigm-shattering, because now our group is not just about us, it's about others. 
We are being commissioned. There's an intentionality about our group. It's not about coming together. It's about going out and telling others about the hope that we have. So what that tells us is that on the one hand, Christian community is a delight because it's good and pleasant. But on the other hand, Christian community is a duty. It's a delight, but it's a duty. There's work to be done. Which is why, that's why all these marks and, and these qualities flow from each other. If we are not united in unity, then we won't have the intentionality. When there's division among us, we're not focused outward, we're focused inward on our issues, on our problems. I, would always, I, heard, I heard someone put it this way. A divided church is a distracted church. I'm going to say that again because I know somebody missed it, Okay. And probably the person who missed it is the person who needs to hear it, okay? A divided church is a distracted church. When we aren't united, unity, we aren't missional intentionality. And a lot of churches in America, the reason why they're dying, I, I, I forgot how many stats are, there's churches are dying left and right in our, in our country. Way more are dying than are being uh, planted, is because a lot of these churches have inner division, and so they're distracted outwardly. And so that's why we must make every effort to maintain the bond of unity, the unity of the Spirit. Make every effort. We have to. And what's funny, though, is that when we went through the first three, most Christians are like, yep, amen, amen. That's exactly what I got in my Bible study. Man, that reminds me of Awana back in the day. Yep, yep, that's, I got that, got that. But when we get to this one, people start shifting in their seats. Because we're really good at the first three, not so good at that last one. And we, we make our groups about ourselves. Listen, guys, we must never, ever, 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 ever confuse community with complacency. A lot of Christians are in groups, and they think they're in community, but actually it's complacency. Because if your community is only focused inward, then you are not doing what God is calling you to do. Amen? So those are the four marks of community, the four qualities of community. Now that we've looked at the qualities, what I want to do now is I want to take a closer look at the qualifications. We've looked at the qualities, and now I want to look at the qualifications. Now, here's what I mean. I don't know about you, but, but as I was studying this passage, there, there's a part of me that's like, okay, I got it. These are the qualities. This is what it looks like to be in community. So let me, let me go do it, right? Let me just go find a group of people and just give myself to it and, and, and let's, let's, just, let's just do this thing. Let's rock this thing. Here's the problem. And it's a big, big, big problem. These qualities are also qualifications, See, if all they were were qualities, then we can all just take it and go and do it. I got it, Pastor. Thanks. I'm joining a group this week. But these qualities are also qualifications. What do I mean by that? Well, in verse 1, right, we, we've been looking at verse 1 this whole time. He says, uh, it, it is how good and pleasant it is for God's people to dwell in unity together, right? But then if you look at verse 3, look what it says in verse 3. It says, it is as, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. But then listen to this. For there, everybody say there. there, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. The question is, where's there? Where is there? I want to be there. Wherever there is, I got to get there because that's where God bestows his blessing. Well, according to commentators, there is verse 1. The place where God bestows his blessing and life forevermore is when God's people are dwelling together in unity. Here's the problem. We have never actually dwelt together in unity. I don't care how, how good the group you've been in is. I don't care how long your Bible study has been together. There's glimpses of it, but there is no group of Christians that can consistently stay there. And if there is where God bestows his blessing, then we're in trouble because none of us are there. That's the issue. That, that's the struggle. That's the problem. It, that's the only place where God bestows his blessing. 
And so there, there's a disconnect here because then what that means is, is that these qualities are actually qualifications. God's saying, if you do this, there will be where my blessing goes. But none of us can get there. In other words, here's what, 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 what David is trying to tell us without even realizing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The only way that you and I can ever receive the blessing of verse 3 is if we live up to the burden of verse 1. The only way that you and I can ever experience the salvation of verse 3 is if we live up to the standards of verse 1. And that's one of the things that happened to me this week as I was studying and I was reading. On the one hand, I was encouraged, but on the, one, on the other hand, I was extremely discouraged because I'm like, man, how beautiful it is to get God's blessing and to get life forevermore. But then the more I studied the passage, I'm like, well, that's beautiful, but I can't get in on that because I can't do that. And I'm a pastor. My job is to hang out with Christians. I get paid to be in Christian community, and I can't do that. So on the one hand, I was encouraged because of the heights of the blessing. But then on the other hand, I was discouraged because of the depths of our behavior. So, so on the one hand, I was encouraged because of the heights of the promise. But then on the other hand, I was discouraged because of the depths of our problem. Encouraged and discouraged all at the same time. And so according to the standard of this passage, follow with me here, none of us meets the qualifications. According to the standards of this passage, none of us is qualified to receive the blessing and the promise. And so if it's not us, then who? Now, what, what, what more religious churches would say, oh, well, it doesn't have to be us. You know why? Because, because, because it's David. David and the Israelites, they did it. Well, we're, we're, we're modern pagan sinners. Of course, we're not going to do it. But, but biblical people, oh, biblical people are the best. We might not be able to meet the standard, but you better believe David and Israel did. Uh, uh, no, they did it. Here's what's, here's what's, what's so uh, interesting to me as I was studying this. When David describes verse 1, commentators don't even know when in his life he wrote it because there was never actually a point in David's life where that was actually happening. So it wasn't actual, it was aspirational, even in his life. Before he became king, Saul's trying to kill him. He becomes king, he has rivals throughout all his kingdom, uh, throughout being while he's king. By the end of it, his own son rises up against him and tries to kill him. At the end of David's life, it's a revolt, it's civil war. And so, we can't do it. We are unqualified. Biblical people, David and the Israelites, can't do it. Then who? Who, who? who can possibly meet the qualifications of this passage? Man, I can tell you've been at our church. <laughs> Listen, the person who meets the qualifications is a greater king. A greater king, an unknown king, an unexpected king from the same city of Bethlehem that David was from. And his name is Jesus Christ. So, so, so let, 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 if you're tracking with me here, if you're tracking with me, say amen. amen. So if you're tracking with me here, let, let, let's, let's kind of bring this all full circle, okay? If Jesus is the person who meets the qualifications, if Jesus is the greater king who meets the qualifications, then the question that we must answer is how does Jesus meet the qualifications? Well, I would argue that there are three ways in which Jesus meets the qualifications of this passage. Jesus is the greater king or the greater David, the greater Israel who gives us a greater song. I'm going to explain each one, okay? The first way in which Jesus meets the qualifications of this passage is that Jesus is the greater David. As we've already seen, all David does throughout his entire reign is he fails again and again and again and again. By the end of his, his reign, he is numbering his people. He gets in trouble because of the census. He is uh, murdering his people, and he's assaulting his people. He was a terrible king. And so what we see is that he clearly wasn't the king that was going to bring the unity that we needed. 
But what's so beautiful is that literally the, the chapter right before this, Psalm 132, it ends by saying God is talking about the reign of, of David. And right before Psalm 133, he says that I will raise up a horn from David. And the, the word there in the Hebrew means I will raise up a stronger king, a better king, who will come do what that first David couldn't do. Here's the other thing. When Jesus shows up, the greater king, in Psalm 118, it's a very well-known psalm for the Jews, not so much for us. But in Psalm 118, it's a psalm that is quoted again and again in the Gospel of Matthew. It's quoted by Jesus twice, and it's quoted by the Jews once. In Psalm 118, even, though you, even if you might not know the psalm, there are certain verses from the psalm that you may know if you know the Bible. The, the first one is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Another one is the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In the Gospel of Matthew, Psalm 118 is quoted again and again. It's quoted by Jesus twice. But what's interesting is that as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the people quote Psalm 118. They said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They think Jesus is the king that they want. What they come to discover is that he's not the king that they wanted. He's the king that they needed. Jesus, looking at that same story, he doesn't quote the blessed is he who comes in the name part of, of uh, Psalm 118. He quotes the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Why? Because they rejected him. They were looking for David. Instead, they got Jesus. He didn't come to bring a political kingdom. He came to bring a spiritual kingdom. So Jesus is the greater David. But get this. He also meets the qualifications because he's the greater Israel. What do we mean by that? What does it mean that Jesus is the greater Israel? Well, just like David, Israel failed too. They actually failed multiple times. But what happens when we get to the, to the place that we're at here in this story, one of the things that, that you might not know, because I actually really didn't even know this, is that Psalm 133 is part of a bigger group of psalms. It's Psalm, uh, one, Psalm, 120, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 are part of what's called the Songs of Ascent. And the reason why they were called the Songs of Ascent is because these are the psalms that the Jewish people sang as they ascended up to Jerusalem three times a year for the festivals. There was three festivals that all Jews had to attend, and these psalms, these songs are the ones that they sang as they came up into Jerusalem. But what's so funny is that this psalm is one of the psalms they had to sing but deep down, the Jewish people knew this wasn't them. They're singing about the unity of God's people and how united they are. And it's like oil and it's like dew and it's all this wonderful stuff. But they know that that's not really them. They get it because these people were from different tribes and different clans. And they come together three times a year. So can you imagine the, the, the gossip and the slander and the backbiting and the competition and the rivalry that these people had? This, wasn't, this doesn't describe them. And so they were singing a song that they knew wasn't true of them. What we see is that again and again and again, Israel fails throughout the Old Testament. God calls them their son, his son. He nev they never behave like God's son because they don't represent him well. God brings them through, through water, the, the Red Sea, and then he takes them into the wilderness and they sin. They are tempted and tested again and again and again, and they fail again and again and again and again. They go to Mount Sinai, they get the law, they just, then they go out of their way to disobey the law for the rest of their existence. But Jesus is the greater Israel. Why? Because Jesus was also called God's son. And he didn't go through the waters of the Red Sea, he went through the waters of baptism. He goes into the wilderness just like they do, not for 40 years, but for 40 days and nights. And every test that was given, he passed it. And that's why in Scripture it says, and they go to Mount Sinai but, and, and bring down the law of God. He goes up to the, a mountain in Galilee and brings down the Sermon on the Mount. And what's crazy about Jesus is that he's the better Israel because it says that God was well pleased with him. Remember what we said the word good there means? It means to be pleasing in the eyes of God. We're not pleasing, but there was one person that was, and his name was Jesus Christ. Jesus was pleasing to God. Listen, and once we understand that, guys... Once we understand that, we are given a greater song to sing. If Jesus is the greater David and Jesus is the greater Israel, then that means we have been given a greater song to sing. Because think about it. What they were singing about as they went up to Jerusalem is they were singing about the atonement. And they were singing about the redemption. But the only atonement they had happened at a temple once a year. And the only redemption that they had happened at a Red Sea several years ago. 
But if this is true, if Jesus is the greater David and Jesus is the greater Israel, then we have been given a greater song to sing about a greater atonement and a greater redemption. And they don't happen at a temple or at a sea. They happen at a cross. Come on, church. That's what we see. When, when you get that, it, it changes you. It makes you want to be in community. See, see, the reason why we need Christian community is because as we come together, we need to be reminding ourselves through the songs we sing. We need to be reminding ourselves of the gospel song again and again and again that that Jesus took the burden of verse 1 so that we might receive the blessing of verse 3. Jesus met the standard of verse 1 so that we might get the salvation of verse 3. Jesus went to the heights of verse, sorry, he went to the depths of our problems so that we might receive the heights of the promise. Jesus became unqualified so that we might become qualified. At the cross, Jesus Christ lost his community so that we might get a community. That's what we see. And so if that's true, then what that means is that what unites us is is not the family we were born in, is not the neighborhood we were raised in, is not the color of our skin, is not the political party that we vote for, is not the money in our bank account, is not the jobs that we do. What brings us together is the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the greater David, the greater Israel, who gives you a greater song. Listen, when we get that, in the passage it talks about oil and dew and song. Well, what we see as we look at it through this lens is that the gospel is the oil. The gospel is that dew. The gospel is that song. The more we swim in that, the more we allow that to fall on us, the more we marinate marinate in it, the more we saturate ourselves in in that oil and that dew, and the more we sing that song, then all of a sudden, the less defensive we become, the less petty we become, the less self-righteous we become, the less private we become, the more forgiving we become, the more loving we become, the more generous we become, the more gracious we become, the more involved we become. And so the reason why you are not hanging out with God's family is because you don't believe you're God's child. That's what we see. That's what's happening. We need to be in community because we are the only group of people in our lives that are going to remind each other that are going to reorient each other, that are going to rebuke each other, that are going to reinvigorate each other, refresh each other, and retell each other the good news concerning Jesus Christ. Listen, to the degree that you delight in the love of of the Father, to that same degree you will display that love to his children. And to the degree that you find your identity in the person of Christ, To that same degree, you will find your community in the body of Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we we come before you this morning, and Lord, we are so grateful. We are so grateful that what makes Christian community Christian is Christ. And without him, we're just another group of people gathering around, focusing on each other instead of others. Father, help our community to be a community that is focused on you. And Lord, I can sit here and I can, you know, uh, give a commercial for our life groups or for uh, uh, Bible studies, whatever. But at the end of the day, here's here's what matters. What matters is not the commercial. What, What matters is I want our people to have a theology of community so that when they understand what community is, they will literally think to themselves, how can I not be in a group like that? That's our prayer. Lord, we love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, and all God's people say.